Okay, we're on um, Lesson 63, and um, this is the beginning of a new year. So we've had a, a new year of um, Bible study here uh, in the fall, and we left off last June uh, with uh, Lesson 62, and you'll remember that Lesson 62, it's actually Chapter 5 in the notes, um, that uh, we, we concluded that with a review of the doctrine of sanctification. <clears throat> See, we've come all the way from creation, the fall, the flood, the covenant, <clears throat> the call of Abraham, the exodus, Sinai, uh, the conquest and settlement. And um, if we had had time last year, we would have finished uh, this chapter 6, which is the uh, beginning of the monarchy and the rise and reign of David. But we didn't have time, so we've had a big hiatus here in the summer months uh, since we got together for the uh, Chapter 5, which was uh, sanctification, a review of the sanctification of the events prior to the rise of David. So I want to remind you what we did back then in June uh, was that we... Uh, reviewed the doctrine of sanctification. We went back all the way to the Tower of Babel, uh, why the Noahic civilization that started after the flood had become corrupt, uh, and why God had to call Abraham out uh, to start a new counterculture. And I reviewed several of the key ideas that we need for everyday sanctification. Uh, remember I went through uh, how God... Uh, brought himself into relationship with the human race through contracts. And uh, we spent some time reviewing that. And so I, I exhorted you to think of your personal growth, your sanctification, relying on an overt, objective, historic demonstration of God's faithfulness, that he gave these covenants out and he promised certain blessings, he promised certain cursings, and he was faithful to do that. You have to read the Old Testament in the light of this contractual background. That's why there are different places in the Bible um, that seem to be a waste of time. They're giving land, um, real estate boundaries. They're talking about genealogies of who ultimately descended from who. But all of that uh, is basically to show that God was faithful to what he said he was going to do. So that was the big idea we left off with uh, back in June. So now what I want to do is I want to remind you, uh, as we start now in the fall, I want to remind you about the concept of the framework. Um, the problem, remember, I said way, way back, we started this this course that there are three basic problems that we Christians have and one is necessarily we learn the Bible through a chapter here and a chapter there as we read you can't perceive or grasp the whole Bible in one one worldview uh, with one one uh, at one time you have to sequence through the Bible and that's fine. We all have to do that. But one of the dangers is that we're left 
with a collection of disconnected stories. And so it's like, I've used this illustration before, it's like beads and a necklace. Beads can be scattered all over the top of the table, but when you thread them through in a certain pattern into a necklace, a well-constructed necklace, you have a pattern on that necklace of the individual beads. And that's one of the objectives of the framework, is to point people to this pattern of the whole Bible. And the second problem that many believers have is that they, they separate doctrinal truths from actual history. And the danger of this is you can know doctrine, but if the doctrine hasn't been rooted in actual real-time history, how do you know that it's not just an idea? After all, we all are living our lives it within time in a physical universe inside the flow of history. But if doctrine isn't linked to the place where we live, then it's kind of surreal and it doesn't strike us with all of the, its intended power. So the third problem that we're grappling with the framework is that we need to see that the doctrinal truths that are in the Bible themselves are all interconnected. They depend on each other. So that's where we get the word framework. It's like building a house. Uh, you have the rafters, but the rafters need support from the walls. The walls need support from the foundation. Uh, you can't take a piece and say that's the house. The house or the building is the entire thing with all the parts mutually strengthening one another. So, coming back now to, to understand what we're doing with the framework, the Bible you must think of not just as one book. Now, it's easy to think that way because our Bibles are one volume. But if you think more deeply, the Bible actually is a library of many books, of many letters. And not only is it a library of many books and many letters, but it's a collection that was written over thousands of years. Not only was it a collection written over thousands of years, but it was written by many different authors in many different life situations. And some of the authors were lowly business people, small business owners, uh, Peter, fishermen, others. Uh, others were kings, David. Um, you have the uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Uh, you have wealthy business people like Abraham. Uh, you have people who are in between, shepherds. You have people who worked with governments like Daniel. So you see you have authors who themselves occupied many different positions in society. They spoke three different languages, some parts of the Bible in Hebrew, some parts of the Bible in Greek, and a little bit in Aramaic. So let's think about what this means to us. It means that the Bible is sufficient to every good work. Why? Because I may have this position in life, you may have another position in life, but there are people who have written 
somewhere in the Bible that have similar positions of you and have similar positions to mine. So we can identify with its authors. Um, and we all face different situations. Not only do we have a station in life, but we have various trials, various opportunities in our lives. And that's the same of, with the authors of the Bible. They came from different locations socially, but they also encountered different life situations. Think of Job with his medical suffering, with his spiritual suffering, with his economic suffering. Think of Abraham with his wealth doing business, able to supply others with his graciousness. Think of Daniel with the struggles he must have had in a powerful government bureaucracy that wasn't at all friendly uh, to, to the Word of God. So I, I just go back over that, folks, because I want you to see the treasure that you hold. The Bible is the most unique library in the history of man. There is nothing like it. Over thousands of years with dozens of authors from many, many different life situations coming from different social positions. And here's the thing. All this diversity, but there's a unity. The Bible has an internal coherence. All of this library of revealed literature has an internal coherence because it is actually the work of our Creator God revealing Himself in space-time history. And God is consistent in His thinking. And therefore His message, even though given over thousands of years, is consistent because it's the same omniscient mind revealing Himself to our finite and often fallen minds. Um, the other thing I want to review uh, with you uh, and, and is a theme, and we're going to see this uh, this fall as we get into the rise and reign of David. But I want you to think in terms of kingdoms. The present civilization began with Noah and his family. And the Bible, if you look up in a concordance, the Bible mentions a rise of something called kingdom. And that was Babel. And this kingdom was the kingdom of man. It was man trying to solve his problem. And Genesis 11 says, remember we, we covered this? What is verse 4 in Genesis 11 saying? We will make a name for ourselves. So you have a kingdom you have the divine institution of the civil government given by God to Noah and his family to begin this new divine institution, the only divine institution that's post-fall. And the function of this institution was to restrain sin so that the word of God could reach people. It would minimize social chaos. But here's the problem. No sooner had Noah and his family begun civilization, spread out, multiplied, that you have now apostasy beginning. Here's sin rising with its ugly head once again. And what sin does to the divine institution of the state or civil power 
is it turns it from a restrainer of evil, a preserver of society, into something different, something not for which it was not designed. And that something is redemption. So the struggle from now on in history, and we are experiencing right today, the struggle we are experiencing is that fallen man wants to redeem himself independently of God. And he will pervert and he will corrupt this divine institution of civil authority to force, it's, 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 it's like uh, salvation by works, or salvation by force. We, because you have certain people gain power in the government and think they are morally superior to the rest of us. And they are going to impose their plan and their program to, quote, progress in history. It's always the idea we're making progress. We are making progress. We are defining history. We are not going to listen to the revealed, transcendent, objective word of God because we are smart. We don't believe in the authority of the word of God. Therefore, we are going to replace it with our dreams of the future, with our ideas of how society should be structured. So that's I call the kingdom of man. Now, opposite to that, because remember, the next event after Babel was the call of Abraham. So, after the kingdom of man began at Babel, you have a second situation where God intervenes and he establishes a counterculture that will be redemptive, that will be a submission to his authoritative word, that will be the custodian of his word down through the corridors of time. And we call this the program of the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, God, in one sense, he's always been in king, king of all things, because he's the creator and the sovereign. But we're not talking about that kind of rule. What we're talking about is that on earth, the original purpose of man to dominate the world, to manage it, that will be fulfilled in a godly way not in a perverted, ungodly way. And when it happens, of course, we now know it's going to happen through the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. That is going to be the kingdom of God program. We are not in the kingdom of God today, but we will be when Jesus returns. Today, we're doing the work necessary to bring in the kingdom of God so God, Jesus in the book of Revelation can break open the scrolls, begin the judgment, and set up his kingdom. But he can't do that if he doesn't have a body of believers from every people group speaking every language. Okay, let's think now back to the material we've already covered. The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Let's contrast the two. And let's look at about five or six uh, points of comparison and contrast. And we're using this so we can mentally categorize where we've come so far in Scripture. Let's look first at the foundation. What is the foundation of the kingdom of man? What is the foundation of the kingdom of God? The foundation of the kingdom of man, remember, is the fact that there is no creator, 
creature distinction. There is only a continuity of being that everything, the rocks, animals, plants, people, angels, and whoever else exists, are all one spectrum, one thing. It's just all of it is one. There's only one level of existence. And everything is part of that level of existence. In contrast, the kingdom of God starts with two levels of existence. There always has been an eternal level of existence in the Creator, the personal infinite Creator. And then He chose to create, external to Himself, this universe. So now we have two levels of existence. We have the Creator, and we also have the creature. Now here's the fundamental difference, and remember we went over this and reviewed it earlier. You can't have both these views mixed. Either we have a creator-creature distinction, or we don't. And in paganism, or unbelief, basically you have everything's the same. The, the gods and goddesses may be more powerful than man, but it, they're still limited themselves. <clears throat> So what we do now is we look at the kingdom of man as far as its moral structure. And what was the event uh, right after creation? Remember, we've gone over the sequence of events and the sequence of doctrine. After creation, what was the next event? The next event was the fall. So now the kingdom of man, as far as its foundation, you have a continuity of being, and since they don't believe the Bible, don't believe the historical record, they have no fall. Well, if there's no fall, what does that do to good and evil? If it didn't start at a point in time, then it must always have been here. So in the unbelieving pagan way of thinking, both good and evil are, have always been. As long as the universe has existed, good and evil have also coexisted. And what that means, and this is a profound difference between the, uh, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, what that means is, is that evil is normal. It is normal to have human evil. It is normal to have natural evil. It is normal to have disease. It is normal to have storms. It is normal to have tornadoes. It is normal to have war. In other words, it's part of normal existence, always has been, always will be. You see, there's no basic hope here. But if you come to the kingdom of God, then it's different. Not only do you have a creator-creature distinction, but you have an innocent, evil-free creation when it left God's fingertips. He said it was very good. No death, no sorrow, no suffering. Then we have the fall brought in by man's rebellion, listening to Satan and rebelling against God, and God judges. And he judges the ground, he judges the woman, he judges the man, he judges the serpent. So you have zoological judgments, you have botanical judgments, and you have judgments on man. So the result is that evil begins at a point in time. And on the other end of the evil situation, not only does evil begin at a point in time, but it's going to end as far as its existence among those who are seeking God, 
there'll be an eternal quarantine into the eternal state, resurrected, free of sin, and resurrected to suffer in the lake of fire forever and ever. So we have heaven and we have hell, as it were. People think, and, and they shy away from talking about heaven and hell and the lake of fire. But if you back off, relax, take ten deep breaths, and think about this, it's precisely the fall on one side and the existence of heaven and hell on the other side that bracket evil. So in the Christian biblical worldview, evil is abnormal. It is not normal. It has not always been, and it will not always be, at least for those resurrected into the presence of God. So, that's the foundation. The two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, have utterly and completely different foundations. Well, let's, <clears throat> let's look at another point of contrast between these two kingdoms. I'm going over this because <clears throat> as we go further in the Bible, we'll see that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man are in total conflict over and over and over again. So we want to have a grasp, as we think about this, about where the conflict is. The conflict starts with the foundations being utterly different. The second thing is, what is the goal, the end goal of both kingdoms? Well, we learn from Babel what the goal of the kingdom of man is. It's for man to dominate. It is for autonomous destiny by and for man. The goal of the kingdom of God is to have a relationship with our Creator. And that, of course, was originally defined in the Abrahamic contract when God said, okay, I'm going to set up a counterculture and it's going to have this goal. And one of those goals in that Genesis 12 passage is that I will bless the world. So you have two different goals, the kingdom of man, man will redeem himself, the kingdom of God, God will redeem man, and it will be a perfect redemption. Then we have the beginning in a physical, political sense of the kingdom of man and the beginning in a physical, political existence of the kingdom of God. And that began, of course, uh, in the, key, in the uh, inauguration, the Babel. And it, was a, uh, it began in history, of course, with the subsequent civilizations, uh, Babylon, Egypt, and so on. They're all basic local versions of the kingdom of man. But the kingdom of God, it, it was inaugurated at the Exodus and Mount Sinai in the conquest. Ancient Israel in the Old Testament, as we've said before, is actually a local version of the kingdom of God. It's limited to a geographical area as sort of a four-dimensional drama of what the ultimate kingdom of God will look like. Of course, it has sin in it because sin hasn't yet been purged. But if you can see through the sin of the intent and the goals, you'll see that it was a localized version of the kingdom of God, the presence of God being there. Okay, we've looked at the foundational difference between the kingdoms. We've looked at the goal difference between the kingdoms. We've looked at where, how they started history in the sense of where we could actually see it functioning. 
Now we have the ethics of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The ethics of the uh, kingdom of man is just uh, what people think ought to be having living or having the situation of having to live in a universe and a life filled with evil. So in that situation, what is right and what is wrong and how do you know that? And that's a dilemma of unbelieving ethics. There's no final arbiter. For example, if I were to come to you and say, uh, I have my way of looking at right and wrong. You have your way of looking at right and wrong. And if I say to you that I think your way of looking at right and wrong is wrong, who decides our argument? See, there's no ultimate court of appeal. Just everybody doing his own thing. And I call that opinion poll ethics. And of course, God addresses that in, in Romans chapter 3, where Paul points out, let, let every person be a liar and only God be true. That's Paul's answer to opinion poll ethics. It doesn't matter how many people think something. It matters who the transcendent uh, authority is, which is God. Okay, the ethics of man. Now, the ethics of God, uh, historically, you can see it at Mount Sinai. Because when he called into existence a localized, physical, political uh, version of the kingdom of God, God had to establish policies. And the policies, Mount Sinai, were, were where these policies were given. And it's ironic, and I, I think if you'll, you'll think of your life, think back to your education. Can any of you remember, as you grew up, as you went through kindergarten, you went through first grade, second grade, all the way up to junior high, high school, can any of you, and even college, can any of you think at any time, did you ever have any teacher in any class, in the classroom or out of the classroom, ever discuss Mount Sinai as a real, literal, historic event? Now, what's so, I, 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 most of us would say, no, uh, we've never seen that happen, never heard it. And isn't it ironic, we've never seen, we never heard it, and yet the ethical principles of Mount Sinai have been borrowed and applied in Western law. So <laughs> here you have the foundation of Western law, and it's never discussed in class. Interesting. Okay, we've looked at the foundational difference, the goals were different, the beginning of these kingdoms in history in a, in a physical, political sense. We've dealt with the ethics problem, and we, the, if you look at the conquest and settlement, there was the expansion of the kingdom. Uh, the, the kingdom was to uh, go all the way out to the limits of the land that God gave. Uh, the expansion of the kingdom of man is always by imperialism of taking over as many uh, areas of land as you can. Um, finally, and this is what we'll be doing this semester, uh, fall here, uh, when we get into the rise and reign of David, and that is the leadership of the kingdom of man. And I hope as we go through that, 
um, I can bring to you the differences between how kings behaved and were expected to behave in Egypt, in Assyria, and round about Israel, versus, and in contrast to, how the king was to behave in Israel. And you'll quickly see the difference. And it's so important you see this in order to think correctly about what's going on in our day. The kingdom of man is a perversion of civil government where government becomes redemptive, attempting. It really doesn't ever get there. Uh, just usually screws things up. But government is thought to be within the kingdom of man as a tool of redemption, a tool to force the human race to progress. Communism being an example, Sharia law and Islam being an example, even Western progressive secularism is another example. So you have the, these examples of the expansion of the kingdom and how they work, but they have to have leaders compatible with that, that nature. And so you'll see the tyrants and how they reigned in Egypt, how they reigned in Mesopotamia. And we'll contrast that with how David in particular acted as king of Israel. A very rich study. And of course, the ultimate leadership of the kingdom of God will be the Lord Jesus. And that explains a lot about his ministry on earth, why he set priorities for his ministry, uh, and why he addressed the human heart more than he addressed the political issues. Obviously, it tells, that's, uh, tells us something there. Okay, so that's the background that I want to review before we start this fall. Now, one of the things that I did do last spring was I ended with uh, Lesson uh, 62. Um, I went over the mental struggles we face in sanctification. And the, I, I showed how our, our physical brains, now that they've been studied uh, and looked at with electrical patterns and others, um, it turns out uh, that the term flesh, which the Apostle Paul uses often, is not just a theological, spiritual term. I believe that flesh refers to the actual flesh, the actual matter of our bodies. Yes, it has a spiritual component, but here's the thing. Think of a pianist, think of a top athlete. How does the pianist train his fingers and his mind to produce wonderful music? Does, he, does that automatically happen? Or is it produced because he practices and practices and practices? Think of an athlete. How does an athlete become really, really good? Does he just do it the first day? Or does he grow by repetition? See what I'm saying is that God has created us people with our bodies, the electrical impulses, the muscle tissue, the coordination of our bodies, so that it adapts to where we want to go with it. 
So we may have goals in our life, and as we pursue those goals, our body is made to respond. It's like if you had a computer, and those of you who are engineers appreciate this, computers have circuit boards in them, or at least they used to. Now it's even smaller stuff. But think of the old-fashioned green circuit board. The circuit board has circuits on it that are fixed. They can have be intelligent, decision-making can happen, and so forth. But the Bible says man is a higher level of engineering in that it's like our brains are circuit boards that are self-adapting to what we want to do. But the circuit board doesn't have any conscience. It just is programmed to adapt to what we want to do. So, as we fear, as we are angry, as we worry, whatever our, our favorite sin pattern is, the more we let it dominate our lives, the more our body is responding and make it easier to do that. It's almost like, in one sense, all sin is addictive. It's just that with different people, there's different directions of the addiction. And that requires sanctification. So, we last spring went through some of the concepts of sanctification. And I want to review these because we're going to get into this with David. In the Psalms that David wrote, he deals with his own sanctification and the sanctification of the nation. So, we're going to get a lot of that with David. So, let's first distinguish the dimensions of sanctification. The Abrahamic covenant promised Abraham and his regenerate seed to have a position before God. The contract gave Old Testament believers a position from which they would not drift. They could not. It's, think of it as a legal situation. They are legally declared to be have this position in their relationship with God. All right. Now come after the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, Israel has a relationship with God, but it's conditional in the sense that if they want to be blessed, they have to do certain things that please the Lord. If they don't do the things that please the Lord, God is going to discipline them. The Mount Sinai covenant is a is a, how shall I say, it's a revelation, in one sense, think of it this way, it's a revelation of how parents raise children. The Abrahamic covenant put believers within God's family. But God is not a permissive parent. A godly parent, an effective parent, is going to be interested in training their children for the real world ahead. The real world that, in, that includes the return of the Lord Jesus. The real world that has an absolute transcendent ethic. The real world that is right now in a fallen state where there's going to be suffering, sorrow, obstructions, and so forth. Now, every parent knows this. Everyone here who has children We've all gone through this. And that is, when our children disobey, when you see them doing something stupid, 
you have to decide where do I impose the discipline? Do I back off, let them make a mistake to the learn from their mistakes, or do I intervene to prevent them from suffering? And every parent has this, this ambiguity. On one hand, you need to have certain authoritative structure. And by the way, child psychologists have shown that children that are, especially when they're very young, two, the twos, the threes, the four-year-olds, if there's not a structure there, those children grow up insecure. See, their heart is made in the image of God. And we all cry out to know Him. God has structured us to be sensitive to His character. We, we get security from knowing that we're secure because He's our Creator. There are structures He's created, and they, we haven't created them. We can't change them. We submit to Him by submitting to the way He's made us. So, in parenting, there's a parallel. As parents, we have certain standards. Sometimes these standards are not biblical, tragically. But if we're prayerful parents, we'll try to have basically biblically friendly standards. And that means that we have to enforce those standards. And every parent quickly learns that you can tell a kid to do something, but to enforce them to do it and deal with it when they don't do it takes you up 95% of the energy. It only took 5% to tell them. It takes 95% to follow it up. And today, parents are harried. You have the mothers working because of the economy and all the rest of what's going on. Uh, the, the dad comes home, he's tired. She comes home, she's tired. And they just don't have the energy to keep after the kids for doing certain things. Chores around the house, assume responsibilities, and it's tough. And we have to pray and support our parents. So, God in, in Mount Sinai is demonstrating what he wants for his son Israel. And he's going to spank them if they disobey. And he's going to be faithful. He's going to be predictable. See, that's where we get security. And today, if we know our Bibles, when we face life and the rough places and the suffering and the tragedies, it's so important that we grasp that He is faithful. Our security comes from being secure in the Lord. He is secure. And He has demonstrated that by His parenting program of Israel. Israel is sort of a mini localized version of the kingdom of God and by ha reading the history of that nation we obtain our security by realizing how God is so faithful to what he has said. Well that's the dimensions of sanctification. There's the positional truth of the Abrahamic covenant and there's the <coughs> conditional day-by-day -day relationship truth through the Mosaic covenant. Now let's look at another aspect that we want to prepare for as we come to David. What is the aim of sanctification? Now, it's interesting because we live in a fallen universe. We often think the aim of sanctification is 
to have victory over evil. But here's a question. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Jesus learned obedience. And he was sanctified. Now, here's a question. Why did Jesus need sanctification? If sanctification deals only with overcoming sin, what was the sins that Jesus had to overcome? Well, obviously, he didn't have sins. So, since he didn't have sins, doesn't that say that had there not been a fall, and just Adam and Eve say they were obedient, but they had tests. Of course, they failed their test, but they did have tests. And the tests were an opportunity to become sanctified, to become strengthened in their obedience. So the aim of sanctification, ultimately, even though in our lives, this side of the fall, it's 99% dealing with sin, there's also the aspect, the aim of sanctification is loyalty to God. Jesus had to learn that. He was a child. He had to grow up. He had to learn what it meant to be obedient to his Father. And we all read in the Gospels the agony of the prayer in Gethsemane the night before he was captured to be crucified the next day. And that praying that Jesus did is a revelation of the struggle of sanctification that he had. Now, there are a few concepts of sanctification that we go over. But, again, I just want to mention these, and we'll come back to these as we approach the rise and reign of David. There are different uh, parts to sanctification. We've already covered the positional part and the experiential part. We've covered the purpose of the aim, which is loyalty to God. And now, let's think about the means that God uses to help us be sanctified. Actually, there are two broad areas, and we have to be careful because these two means to sanctification often get intermixed and confused. On one sense, there's law. Now, it's true, in the church age, we're not under the Mosaic law, but we are under the laws of ethics that are repeated. As Dr. Charles Ryrie has pointed out, nine of the Ten Commandments are given in the New Testament church age. So, Revelation, God's imperatives, you know, the verbs with the imperative mood, the commands, those are one means. Just like parents, the child is not going to know it if you don't say it and make clear that you are supposed to do X or you're supposed to do Y. That's a means of sanctification. But we quickly learn we don't have the internal spiritual strength to overcome our flesh. Our flesh doesn't want to go. And so we have to subdue the flesh, and the only way we can subdue it is not with Operation Bootstrap, not with human discipline. It is to look to the Lord for empowerment. And that empowerment comes not because we deserve it, but it comes if we are saved. It comes because He is gracious. So, the two broad categories of means of sanctification are law in the sense of God's revealed imperatives and grace in the sense of God's um, his enablement. 
Then we also have the dimensions of sanctification. We're going to get into that. And we have the enemies of sanctification, the world, flesh, and the devil. And with respect to the enemies, remember when we went through the conquest and settlement, uh, I pointed to the fact that God seems to use an indirect strategy rather than a direct one. And I referred to, uh, to some writings uh, by strategists, and uh, Liddell Hart in particular. <clears throat> and the idea that uh, this scholar, this military scholar, learned by studying thousands of years of history and asked the question, which strategies won and which strategies tended to lose? And he came to the conclusion that if you have a direct strategy where you're striking directly, uh, think, for example, of the charges across the fields in the Civil War, um, a direct charge against the other side. And it, the casualties were awful. World War I was the same thing, just awful bloodshed so quickly. So many men lost their lives by the tens of thousands in battles. And that was direct strategy. In contrast, World War II was more maneuver. Rather than strike directly, um, they would have a flanking maneuver. So let's, let's apply that spiritually. To fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, we may be tempted to have a direct strategy. But we'll quickly find that direct strategies aren't too successful. Because if we're not loyal to the Lord, if we're not looking to Him, we simply don't have the enabling power to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is a genius. He can outmaneuver our little creature thoughts and he's a creature yes but he's apparently a more brilliant creature than any of us are so he can outmaneuver us but what he can't do is when we look up and we look at the Lord and we look at his word and we ask for his help then we are can be successful with the world of flesh and the devil that is the indirect approach we don't directly attack the world of flesh and the devil but we indirectly attack, going through the Lord first, claiming the great truths of Scripture first, and then we uh, we excel and we have um, freedom. Okay, what I've tried to do uh, now is to prepare us for the fall, and next time we'll meet, we're going to have a exercise sheet. I'm going to hand you a sheet. And we're going to have a little matching exercise and a few other points to get in shape for what we're going to do in the rest of the fall. I hope you have a godly time. And if you'll look uh, in anticipation for next week, uh, we will get started on the rise and reign of David.